Thank you for listening to Episco Auburn. This is the third episode of this podcast for Episcopal Student Ministries in the Auburn and Opelika area. My name is Gail Goldsmith. I'm a priest at Holy Trinity Episcopal Church, serving both the college ministry and the parish. This podcast is one of the ways that we're doing Bible study together. We're also meeting on Zoom on Wednesdays, and you can find the link in our group me. Also, if you're curious about what we do and how we gather, I hope this is useful to you too. We're going through the Acts of the Apostles, what God's people did in uncertain and changing times, how the fragile, freaked out, and fallible people of God prayed, followed the Holy Spirit, and took the gospel into new places. You can follow along in your Bible. We're looking at the end of Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 32, for a really beautiful description of um, the ways in which the early church loved each other and took care of each other in specific and material ways, starting with verse 33. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to lay at the disciples' feet. And we see see two approaches to this. We see um, Joseph, who the story tells us is a Levite, a a native of Cyprus. So that emphasizes he's a Jew, but from a different um different country, different geography, and different culture, sort of to say that these were no longer deciding factors on who participated in uh, this new experience of faith. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. Also, his name means son of encouragement, so that's great. Um, The author of Acts describes all this to show that uh, money here isn't the root of all evil. It's used to destroy what um, money would normally reinforce. Distance, boundaries between people, uh, perhaps a social hierarchy. And then we see the strong contrast in what Ananias and Sapphira do. So Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he brought back some of the, he kept back some of the proceeds, brought only a part, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter rebukes Ananias, saying, "Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land?" So Ananias hears his rebuke. He fell down and died. Great fear come upon all who hear of it. A few verses later, same thing to Sapphira. Three themes to keep in mind as we look at this story. One, Ananias and Sapphira's behavior is a strong contrast to this previously described economy of generosity and trust. There's this trust that the community will express their faithfulness to God by taking care of each other. And uh, everyone participates in this extreme generosity. Uh, So for Ananias and Sapphira to hold money back shows more of an allegiance to the idolatries of money and possessions and perhaps a lack of trust in their community. If this doesn't sound like our modern approach to uh, personal finance, 
I think it's meant to. I think I, I think we're supposed to reconsider a few things and hear it as uh, a really high call. Two, there's a fear that Satan is influencing members of the community. Peter um, rebukes them saying, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Uh, he places sort of a fear of dishonesty and a fear of manipulation in this story that the community of God that we see might be under attack from the powers and principalities. Third, there's a Hebrew Bible parallel here. Looking at Joshua chapter seven, but the Israelites broke faith in regard to the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the Israelites because Chan, uh, one of the soldiers has taken some of the devoted things, uh, spoils of war that were supposed to be offered back to God and buried them under his tent. We read that the anger of the Lord burned against the Israelites and Joshua's soldiers uh, suffer a super disheartening defeat. Joshua tears his clothes, falls to the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and just laments. The Lord says to him, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed on my covenant that I imposed upon them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They've acted deceitfully and have put them among their own belongings. When we look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, we're supposed to sort of hear this same uh, tone of they broke faith. Theologian Willie Jennings, in his commentary on Acts, continues the theme of idolatry, but instead of saying it's money or possessions, he says it's being a couple. Ananias and Sapphira assume they're sovereign, he writes. This couple believe that they may lie to the Holy Spirit. And couples now are often led to believe they may do the same because too many churches have told them that their life supersedes our life together. We have not had the courage to face the idolatry of the couple because it contains our fear and controls our faith. It encircles our fear of bare life, life vulnerable and subject to wind and force, chaos and death. The couple gives us the illusion of manageable life. It narrows our vision of intimacy to the joys a couple rightly shares and turns us towards the narcissism of the two made one. This idolatry of the couple as, um, as a unit is really interesting to me. Incidentally, I took a class called Idolatry in Divinity School. It's a little weird to look at your transcript and see that you got an A in idolatry. Sorry, God? Anyway, I have an article from The Atlantic for us to look at and a book to help us sort through how this is meaningful for us today. The article in The Atlantic is the first lesson in marriage, there are no soulmates. Please look it up, it's really interesting. It's about a marriage 101 course at Northwestern University. And here's a quote from one of the professors about this course. Developmentally, this is what the college years are all about. Students are thinking about who they are as people how they love, who they love, and who they want as a partner, says Alexander Solomon, a professor and family therapist, teaching this with four faculty and 11 teaching assistants. She says, we're passionate about talking about what makes a healthy relationship. This for me is a really interesting line. The professors see the course, which requires journaling exercises, interviews with married couples, and several term papers. 
as a kind of inoculation against potential life trauma. I think that's a really big thing to ask of a college course. Here's more from Professor Solomon. The foundation of our course is based on correcting a misconception that to make a marriage work, you have to find the right person. The fact is, you have to be the right person, she declares. Our message is countercultural. Our focus is on whether you are the right person. Given that we're dealing with 19, 20, 21 year olds, we think the best thing to do at this stage in the game, rather than look for the right partner, is to do the work so they understand who they are, where they are, where they came from, so they can then invite in a compatible and suitable partner. I don't think the message is countercultural enough, but right, it's a college course. It isn't an invitation to how the church views marriage. We'll get to that shortly. So the college course talks about secular technique and knowledge saving us from pain, which would be nice, but we know that's not enough. And then we have romance as idolatry, but there has to be something more because we're always going to mess up. We're always going to need grace. Only Christ offers that to us. Here's Zal on that. The Bible doesn't eschew romance or deny its transcendent thrill. Instead, it posits a third model for romance and marriage, not one of expediency or mutual gratification, but of self-emptying and sacrifice a model in which the groom gives himself fully for the bride, satisfying rather than introducing expectations, the sign of his fidelity being not a ring, but a cross. This groom, Jesus himself, is under no illusions about what he's getting slash gotten himself into. He doesn't wait for his beloved, us, to get our feelings right in order to leverage his devotion, but stands ready to absolve her of them. He knows that he's marrying the wrong person, that wrong people are all there are, yet he refuses to spare himself the heartache. Marriage is one way, but not the only way to live a life in covenant. But it is for all couples who feel called to set aside selfishness, make countercultural vows before God, family, and friends, and accept a higher responsibility to each other, and to live a life of discipleship together that is deeply aware of God's grace. Theologian Willie Jennings, who we quoted earlier, takes a broader view, saying, A couple can be a space of safety and freedom only as they participate in a space of safety and freedom for a gathering community. Also, there's kind of a reason that almost every time you see a wedding and TV or a movie, it uses at least a little book of common prayer. It's just so good, you know, to have and to hold and sickness and in health. But here's a deep cut that parallels Je Willie Jennings' broader view of marriage within the church. Make their life together a sign of Christ's love to this sinful and broken world, that unity may overcome estrangement, forgiveness heal guilt, and joy conquer despair. Amen. Cool. Let's stop there. Let's talk about this when we gather on Zoom on Wednesday, or you can send me an email at gail at holytrinitychurch.info. Thank you.